Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today I'm joined by Chad Lehman. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Nice to be here. So for people hearing you for the very first time, can you explain a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Chad Lehman. I'm the Director of Innovation for the Neil Squires Society. They're a registered Canadian nonprofit uh, that mission statement is to help people with disabilities through technology, knowledge, and passion. So I've had the pleasure of working in the organization for over 20 years and help uh, really bring new and emerging technologies uh, into the organization to further our mission of serving people with disabilities. This is actually a topic I'm really excited to get into. Uh, but before we do, I wanted to know what I call your superhero origin story. How did you get started working with nonprofits? Yeah, so when I was... Uh, a younger man uh, doing university. I started in computer science and, uh, you know, this is like the 1990s. Uh, so, you know, early dot-com pre-bubble sort of time. And I enjoyed it. I, I did computer science in high school. Uh, but as I was going through university, I sort of had the realization that I did not want to be punching code and for the rest of my life in databases. And I was always taking uh, English courses just for my own sort of interest and enjoyment and mental health getting through university. And then I got a summer job working at Neil Squire in the computer literacy program. And you got to remember, this is early 90s. So, you know, people are signing up for Yahoo email accounts and using Ask Jeeves to find information on the Internet. AOL. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we make some uh, squeaking phone noises here. Um, but it really sort of clicked to me that technology could be an opportunity to really have a social impact as opposed to just, you know, building a video game or making a database, but you know, how this could really have a transformative impact in the lives of people with disabilities. So that sort of technology for social good piece was a sort of a light bulb moment for me. Uh, and then I had the opportunity. So yeah, I did, I did a summer job there. I kept volunteering with them as I was going through university and literally a couple of weeks after I finished and graduated, the job came up to run the digital literacy program, computer comfort, the organization. And they've been a, uh, stuck with me ever since. We don't have a dissimilar background, actually. I went to um, computer engineering and I actually ran, for those uh, who know, I ran a BBS, a bulletin board system pre-internet, which is a, a real flashback at this moment. But uh, those were exciting times, the dial-up modems and so forth. It, uh, it was a great time. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So what made you join Neil Squire then? So after uh, the, the summer job and having the sort of opportunity there, the, the mission really sort of resonated with me and having that sort of opportunity to sort of use my technology skills and sort of help people with that and sort of, you know, in terms of finding information. This is the early days of the internet. So it was really exciting about you could, you know, find things out without having to wait for like a six o'clock newscast and stuff like that. So uh, it was really good. And then just you would see the impact it had in people's lives. So many of the people that I was working with the time, you know, they've been out of work for a number of years and lots of other barriers, sort of social inclusion. And so you'd have people come in and, you know, to get an email account and maybe get in touch with family they're not seen for a while or find information out. And you sort of see this light bulb of, you know, when I started coming here, I had no idea what computers were, how to use them. Now I'm finding information. And if I can do this, there's probably other things I can do too. And quite often it was, uh, it's not specifically uh, like a pre-employment program, but it really worked like that. It really helped people build their confidence get out of their house, connect with people, find information. It got them thinking about what other things I could do. And we, I remember, as I was wrapping up a, a funded project on that, 
I called a bunch of people that I'd worked with over the years. And another one was like, oh yeah, I'm volunteering here now, or I've gone back to school for this, or I've started a job over here. And it really seemed to be sort of a springboard, not just for their skill development, but also their sort of social development and, you know, self-confidence. And that's sort of like, there are opportunities for me in this world uh, that I can pursue. So it was really exciting uh, to sort of see that. And I would say the other piece that uh, I was very fortunate with, with just the management sort of piece was if I had an idea to help improve the program or sort of grow something new, they were like, you know, have at it. So I was able to sort of start at that time a computer refurbishing program. So I had some volunteers come in and we're fixing up computers and getting some donations of equipment and giving it to people with disabilities. And that sort of ability to have that sort of impact and sort of, you know, you can have an idea, you can take the ball and run with it and, you know, starting to get computers into people's homes, again, the connected to the internet was really, really powerful uh, to sort of see that ability to sort of move things forward. So I've, I've been very blessed to have the opportunity at Neil Square to sort of be uh, an entrepreneur. So instead of, starting a bunch of businesses uh, outside, helping start programs inside the organization and get them running and resource and then finding people way smarter than me to run them and run them better. And I've been really blessed to sort of have the opportunity to grow programming within the organization to help further our mission. I've never actually heard that word before, entrepreneur. I love it. It makes total sense. I can, I mean, it clicks right away. You know exactly what it means the minute you hear it. I guess then that you decided at one point to start this Makers Making Change program. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, Neil Squire has programs around digital literacy, employment, and assistive technology, trying to make sure people with disabilities have the system devices they need to fully participate. And we also have an R&D department that has been bigger or smaller over the years and grant rounds of pieces. But the R&D department had invented this device called the LipSync. Uh, and the LipSync, in the very simplest terms, was meant to be a mouse that you could use with your mouth. And it was meant to sort of solve the gap. You know, this was invented sort of early 2010. So this was when it, you know, the early days of the smartphone. And it became very clear that this is going to change everything for better or for worse, but in terms of how we connect and engage and get information. But uh, at that time, you know, with the iPhone, if you could not use your hands to touch a touch screen of the device, how do you use a touchscreen device? So if you're a quadriplegic or a stroke or ALS or maybe cerebral palsy or have any sort of difficulty in holding a phone with one hand and touch a screen with the other, you are not able to use this really transformative device. So it becomes what we've, we call uh, the digital divide, where there's new technology that changes the way the majority of the population connects with each other and works and shares information. But if you don't have access to that, you're now further marginalized. You're on the wrong side of the digital divide. And for people with disabilities, there is usually cost issues that can drive this and accessibility issues and in terms of using it. So the LipSync device was meant to be a mouse that you could use with your mouth. And we've done a lot of work with the organization. Neil Squire was our sort of first mouth operating uh, computers with Apple IIe computers in the 80s. But there was nothing like that for smartphones at the time. So we applied to Google. Google had an innovation challenge around disability technology. And so we pitched, like, we have this prototype lip sync device. We'd actually sent it to manufacturing. That manufacturer went broke. So we had this great innovation that was literally sitting on a shelf. So we pitched to Google, which I think aligned really well. You know, they make a little phone operating system called Android. And it's like, let's get this to people. And our model to do it was like, let's reimagine this so that it will work well with a mobile device and let's release it open source. So it isn't another assistive technology that is dependent on a manufacturer 
and we'll have, you know, markups of sort of national distribution and regional distribution. Let's, let's take a different model to get this to people. So we released it open source. So that means similar open source software where anyone sort of take a look at the code. We released it as sort of open source hardware, which means on our website, you could download uh, the 3D print file. So you can 3D print the shell of the lip sync. The code that goes on the Arduino uh, that's in there, Arduino is a microcontroller. It's basically a computer, but the size of a USB thumb drive that runs the lip sync. That code is open and available. So anyone can download, you can buy the Arduino for 20 bucks, flash the code and change it. Maybe you want the sip and puff of the device, not to be left click, right click, but flip that or change the sort of pressure that you need. And, and we have an instruction manual. So you can sort of think like, you know, you buy a box of Lego. Here's how you put the Lego together to make the castle. Same thing. We have an instruction manual that sort of shows like, here's where we buy the parts. Here's how you put them together. Here's where you get the PCB boards. Uh, so it really sort of opened up the opportunity where these could be built. So with the Google grant, I had sort of targets of when I would have, you know, the prototype done and when I have some out in the community and some feedback. And in working with people and building these lipstick devices and really focus on that, other people we met would be like, you know, I don't necessarily need the lip sync, but I could use a way to, you know, put a bag onto my wheelchair because I can't control it while I'm driving it, or I could use a cup holder. So really sort of open up the opportunity to, at this time, really lean into the emerging sort of maker movement and these new methods of manufacturing, like 3D printing and uh, low-cost hobbyist computers to make assistive technologies for people in a much more affordable sort of range. So the lip sync was our sort of first device uh, but it really led to this maker-making-change program where we're building a library of assistive devices that are open source so that other people can make it. It can be done at the community level. doesn't require some central manufacturing. And the other benefit of open source um, is that it can be customized. You know, people with disabilities will have a wide range of how a disability will impact them. You know, cerebral palsy manifests very differently for uh, different people, you know, the level of your spinal cord injury, you know, if you have a spinal cord injury, where that injury is on your spine, you know, a couple inches can make a big difference in terms of can you move your fingers? Can you pinch your hand? Do you have any arm movement? Can you shrug your shoulders? So the ability sort of to tweak things and customize what people's needs is really important for people with disabilities. Um, and that open source model where you can sort of take a base design and then tweak it and change it a little bit to meet the needs. Um, really fulfills a gap that uh, can't be done for sort of traditional commercial mass manufacturing ways. I have about 15 questions now. <laughs> Let's see if we can get through a few of them. So the, the lip mouse, which is amazing, and actually I've seen it before. It's really cool to now know the origins of it. This was, like you said, the inspiration for this program. The other ideas that have now come to fruition, is it all the ideas that Neil Squire has come up with? Or do you have like other designers outside who are able to contribute and then you are able to distribute those ideas through this program? Yeah, we've been really big on crowdsourcing the, the opportunity. So while I am right now very blessed to have some good funding that allows me to hire some engineers to work on real priority projects, over half the items in the Makers Making Change library did not come from Neil Squire slash Makers Making Change staff. We've been doing a real big push on curating different things out there. There's lots of things that happen in the community where someone comes up with a great solution to someone's needs. And we're trying to like capture that and document that and get them in the library. Because I, I do believe that quite often when you solve for one, 
you're really solving for many. So we're trying to help some good ideas scale. One of the most common um, assistive switches that are in our library, the Interact switch, was designed by a dad that had a kid with a disability, and he was tired of paying 110 bucks for a button that his kid would quit off and pull on the cable and it'd break as another $110. So he came with a 3D printed design and enclosure. It's literally a little bit of soldering, solder two jacks, and it can be made for about 10 bucks. So that was, and we've seen a lot of the things that have come to our library that are good come from the disability community, solutions that people need and have addressed, uh, and we're trying to help those scale. And we have now on our website, and it took us a while to get there, but we do have a form. So I, you know, the projects that sort of we get to people with disabilities usually fall into one or two buckets. One is it's in the library. Someone sees it. That's what I need. Great. You can request it. You can build it yourself or you can request it and get sort of paired with a maker to help fabricate that for you. But then we also have what we call our design challenges where somebody has an idea of what they need, but there isn't a commercial solution or at least a commercial solution that is affordable or something that is well-documented design. And those design challenges, we really, you know, our engineering team will take on some of those, but the, the needs of people with disabilities certainly exceeds the granting money that I've been able to raise. So we've been sort of crowdsourcing those and volunteers can take those design projects on. And volunteers are uh, an, an amazing, there's amazing opportunities there. Um, and we've seen really great projects, whether that's from an individual that has some 3D printing skills and wants to get back, whether that's corporations that have engineers and they're looking for some community service, or whether those are students that are in university or even high school pro programs where they have a robotics team they want to get back or capstone projects in engineering schools at the university. So we've been very fortunate to have these sort of different pockets of, you know, people that want to have a sort of skill-based philanthropy where they're really using their technical skills to have a social impact. There must be, I imagine, a, some kind of a qualification process that you that um, a designer or an idea maker has to go through in order to be eligible to be part of the program. Like, I imagine there's some crazy ideas out there that might sound good in someone's head, but don't actually make practical sense. So how do you, how do you validate or vet certain ideas and, and, and make sure that this is actually fit for purpose? Yeah, so a couple things that we work on in sort of that is uh, one, we don't want to touch anything where someone, if failure equals pain. So like, I'm not going to take on projects where we're, you know, hacking or adapting mobility devices. And there are some great projects out there, but you know, if I have a student, I don't want someone, you know, messing with someone's wheelchair uh, controls where if something goes wrong, another wheelchair doesn't work or, you know, they bridge a solder joint and it sends someone's wheelchair down a set of stairs. So anything that involves adapting someone's mobility equipment, we usually stay away from. Similarly, anything that's sort of like emergency related. So while I've seen, you know, opportunities for, you know, sort of emergency call buttons that could be maybe more affordable. I don't want to have something where, again, given the fact that many of these projects are built and fulfilled by volunteers and their skill range may vary a little bit. I don't want anything that is like, critical life safety that we are hacking or adapting. Um, that point, I think, is best to have a commercial thing where there's, you know, liability and control processes for certain design lines. But lot, there's lots of things, just aids for daily living, where I think this really makes sense, whether that's an adaptive video game controller or other sort of aids for daily living around the house, where if it breaks, that is unfortunate, but no one's going to get hurt. Uh, so the, those are sort of the things where the risk of failure equals really negative outcomes that we'll stay away from. But there's still a huge gap uh, that I think our model helps 
fulfill in meeting people where they're at in some of their age of daily living. That makes sense. And then you mentioned open source and even 3D printing. So I'm curious to know just the business model of things on the consumer side. If I, I'm interested in something that you have in your library, is there a subscription that I need to subscribe to to get access to the library? Or is it a one-off payment? Or is it all free and I just, you get funding other ways, like through the grants and the crowdfunding? Yeah, a little bit more of the latter there. Uh, we do let people know that when they request things through the website, they are responsible for the cost of the parts. So the labor would be free by the volunteers, but if you know they need to buy, you know, a hundred dollars worth of parts, ideally the volunteer and that person sort of figure out what's the scope of the project, what's the cost, and then the requester is responsible for the cost of parts. That said, however, we've been pretty fortunate in having sponsorship through some grants and you know corporate sort of giving pieces where, like I'll give you an example, um, Salesforce, for example, uh, in Atlantic Canada, uh, staff. I've had a couple of uh, events with us where they've been building assistive switches or adapting toys for kids with disabilities. And they treated it as a team building event. So the team has opportunities to sort of donate to causes where they volunteer for. So they'll volunteer, let's say like four hours for us and adapt some toys for kids with disabilities. They're able to apply internally to have their sort of dollars for doers program cover that cost. And then Salesforce matches that on top of it. So they're giving their time. The organization gives them money to volunteer their time. Then they match that money, which basically means the cost for all those parts is covered for by Salesforce. And then we're able to just donate that to families in need or rehab hospitals in the area. So we've been, you know, the expectation is if someone requests something for the site, they were responsible for the cost of parts to make that build happen. But we've been very fortunate that quite often we've had donors that'll sort of cover those costs. So it's sort of a win across the board in terms of uh, low to no cost for the participants that need things and people able to to get what they need. That is one thing I do appreciate about Salesforce in that they have this 1% program where they encourage, not even encourage, they actually enforce that all their employees spend 1% of their time volunteering outside of Salesforce for any kind of organization. And they do give free uh, licenses to certain nonprofits, except for their profits as well. It's a magical thing to see, and I'm happy to see it actually happen for your organization. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great. And a number of organizations have that. So if anyone listening works at an organization, you may be surprised at the sort of those benefits that are there. A number of financial institutions have helped us with this, a number of telecoms. I don't want to, I don't want to start listing names of the great organizations that have done this. I'm sure I will miss someone and feel awful, but we've had real great support. And uh, a number of workplaces have these sort of programs where if you give back to your community, your workplace will match it, uh, whether that's paid days off to volunteer or some sort of dollars to help those missions that you believe in. So it's really worth people taking a look at that benefits plan they have with their work because they can have a great impact in their community through their things they're passionate about. That's a good call out. Thanks for making it. I'm curious, you mentioned a couple of categories that uh, makers making change serve. You talked about innovation, digital literacy, uh, employment, and assistive technology. Could you give me an example of one of each if possible? Yeah, so those areas would be uh, maybe a little more broadly across the Neil Squire organization. So Neil Squire is a Canadian charity. Uh, we served over 6,600 Canadians last year across those sort of suite of programs. Makers Making Change sort of sits in the, as a program of Neil Squire under the innovation department, but it's a bit of a Venn diagram, right? You know, people, while we're sort of inventing new technologies and getting them out there, these are assistive technologies that are happy, helping people. Quite often they enable digital literacy. So if someone maybe requests a lip sync device for us and we can build it, 
then we can refer them on to our digital literacy programming to help get training. So they're, you know, you can have the tool, but how do you use the tool and how do you use the tool to use the internet? So we can refer those sort of pieces. So we are very fortunate to be a larger organization with a wide range of programs that can kind of help support people in their journey in terms of getting the system technology they need, building the skill development, and then helping them pursue their goals, be that more engage the community through like volunteering or employment or education. Um, that's a good. And while that most of the Neil Squire Society programs have really, I mean, our mission statement is to empower Canadians with disabilities. With the open source sort of model of makers making change, we've really seen connections across the states and in other parts of the world where people are leveraging these resources, contributing to it, and uh, borrowing the designs, which which is great. It really scales the impact. And I believe that by serving Canadians, we're serving the world. And by doing that, we're getting the best of the world into our library. We have designs that have come in from Australia. Um, we have a number of chapters across the states. So it's really uh, the sort of giving it away for free, you know, that open source sort of model really has helped scale the impact and I think really helped some great projects come up that otherwise wouldn't have happened. We just stayed in our own bubble. Are there any challenges with power? Because I know different parts of the world have different power sources. I imagine that not all of your products need power, but if the ones that do, do you offer multiple options and depending on what region of the world you're in? Yeah. I mean, many of our projects are not plugging into, you know, your standard wall outlet. A number of them are plugging in USB per se. Right. Uh, so I haven't had too many pieces like that, but uh, like the lip sync project or whatever. And again, just like an example story of uh, app as a open source technology. So totally independent of me. I found out about this way after it happened. Uh, there was a fellow that lived in Africa and he was traveling in Korea and had a fairly significant accident and was left a spinal cord uh, injury. So the rehab council in South Korea built the lip sync device and, you know, they ordered their own PCB boards. They had to figure out different supply chain sort of stuff because, you know, the amazon.ca cart linked off the website didn't have everything but they were able to source the device build it and make some accommodations for this user and it went back with him to africa uh you know never when i you know got this google grant and we were starting trying to pilot it in the pacific northwest of north america here did i think you know a man in africa would have this built firm in korea and i didn't have to ship anything or mail anything it was just out there right so again the sort of advantage of being open source is that people can take what we have, but also change and adapt it to meet their, their local needs. You mentioned a really good point about that digital divide, uh, because you're right, the more we use uh, smartphones in our day-to-day -day life, if you're not using one, you are disconnected in some way, in many ways, actually. And I'm curious to know how certain other technologies, aside from that, from that mouse thing, differ for people who have disabilities versus not. Like, Can you give me a more concrete example I think I saw, for example, a wine opener or a beer opener or some kind of, you know, some kind of other object that has to be built differently for a disabled person versus a, a non-disabled person. Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's, uh, I guess, a few different ways you can sort of look at this. But in terms of like the digital divide sort of aspect, and it's not just disability, there's a whole wide range of social economic sort of pieces. So, and this work's been going on for a while <laughs> when we, there's a there's an interview of uh, the founder Neil Squire, Bill Cameron, out there, and he's saying, you know, hopefully in a few years they don't need programs like this, and that's not been our case. And you know, during the COVID pandemic, when the world went to lockdowns, everything went digital. Then we really saw the impact of the digital divide. If you didn't have access to a computer with working internet and the skills to use it, 
you are really isolated. You like that, that, that really shows still how much the digital divide is there mm. and the gaps between uh, the sort of haves and have nots. Uh, and we were fortunate to get some funding to do that. And we were starting to do online learning and digital training online with people early 2010. So we were fortunate that we sort of had those systems and processes in place of the organization where we were able to really quickly scale up that delivery model, which was at that time really focused on, you know, rural, uh, you know, people not close to city centers or people with, you know, if you have a disability and a significant disability, getting somewhere to learn digital skills can be a whole thing between, you know, your care aids to get you ready. You know, transportation is a huge issue for people with disabilities if there's accessible transportation at all. Lots of Canada has snow for parts of the winter, you know, transportation, another barrier uh, getting around town. So delivering these services online to people where they're at really help close that gap. And also if they're using some particular assistive technology to access a computer, to be able to use it on their computer in their home with their setup is way better than coming to another lab or maybe using a different operating system or a different technology or different setup. It really helped people learn the skills they needed on the devices they use to meet their goals. So that was that was a really important part of the sort of like just general digital divide. I would say, you know, when you're having projects or programs or look meaning to close the digital divide or meet people they're at, um, there's usually three or four sort of core pillars that you're going to need. Person's going to need a spot where they can have low cost or opportunities to sort of learn and ask questions. If you think you're just going to publish curriculum on a website and that will solve all their needs, I'm afraid to say you are probably mistaken on that. They're going to need access to these devices so they can learn that on their own time and reinforce that learning. So, you know, if you're doing math as a child once a week and then you're not practicing at home and they come back a week later and expect to remember it all, again, you need that opportunity to reinforce the learning. And then opportunities for uh, low cost or affordable internet so people can connect. Many people with disabilities are on the wrong side of social economic spectrums. Poverty rates are nearly twice that for people with disabilities. Unemployment rate is nearly double the population. Uh, and the more severe your disability is, the more likely you are not to have employment. So having affordable internet access is a really important sort of piece too. So having opportunities to sort of learn, practice and have access, I think are really core pillars to helping close digital device stuff. Now, Alex, you asked me another question there too about just different examples of different assistive technology or barriers faced by people with disabilities. And it really is a wide spectrum. Yeah, I was going to jump in because maybe I can add a bit more color to the question before you answer it, is that in my mind at least, I was only thinking about physical disabilities, but of course there are many more than just physical ones. So maybe you can offer a couple of examples that don't involve a physical disability. Yeah, sure. And I mean, sometimes you'll find that many innovations that have been made to help address a disability issue solve other issues for the general population as well. So a common example that would be curb cuts, right? A curb cut would allow some of the wheelchair to kind of get up onto a sidewalk instead of that sort of big step. That also helps moms with strollers or delivery people with dollies and just, you know, kids on bikes, etc. And that is true in the technical world as well. For example, text messaging started about 50, 60 years ago as a communication system for people that were deaf or hard of hearing. Uh, it was, uh, and it started where, you know, uh, a, a person that was deaf or hard of hearing had the special device that would connect to their phone. You could call a special phone number. And, you know, someone would talk, a typist would type it on the device, that person could read this on their device, type back a message, 
that would get spoken to the person. So that sort of like communicating via text message was originally started to help close an access gap for people that are hard of hearing. Alexander Bell's work on early phone systems was because he had someone he was quite fond of that was hard of hearing. So that tried to amplify voice. So quite often in solving disability barriers, you're actually, uh, and having a technology input actually really helps change and create more opportunities for all of us to communicate. I mean, I'll give you another example, you know, someone, uh, again, hard of hearing, you know, closed captionings on TV also works for parents who are maybe trying to watch something quiet while the kids are falling asleep. So yeah, there's different technologies that will help different people in terms of sort of digital access. At the core piece of digital access, you're trying to either put information into a system or get information out of a system. And assistive technology can enable different ways for input or output. Uh, so our executive director, Gary Birch, he has a spinal cord injury. He has arm movement, uh, some thumb movement in his hands, but no finger movement. So when he's typing, he quite often is using something called speech recognition. So he talks and it types. Now, this is speech recognition has gone very mainstream the last few years with our Google Homes and our Alexas and things like this. But speech recognition as input has been around on computers uh, for 20, 25 years. Um, and for him, that allows him to more quickly generate text, send emails, fill out those government reports, you know, all those sort of pieces. So he still uses thumbs and, you know, a knuckle on his hand to make some corrections and pieces, but speech recognition enables him to much more quickly communicate and write. So that would be an example of an accommodation for input. For output, uh, there sometimes can be screen readers. So maybe someone is low vision, has literacy issues, maybe has no vision. So you can have the web page or the text of document read aloud to you either through headphones. And sometimes it's a bit of a, a combination. They might use some magnification software to read pieces, and then there's a longer article. They'll let that be read aloud. So a lot of assistive technologies is really changing the way you get information into or out of a computer and based on the needs of the person, uh, whether that's uh, some of the physical disability that maybe needs different input methods or some of the maybe sensory disability that needs different output methods to get the information out. So like I said, up until now, I've been really focusing on the physical disability. You talked a bit about vision, and I'm curious to know how accessibility comes into play. I know when I build websites, for example, we have to consider a certain contrasts for people who are colorblind. So I'm curious to know, how would you, and maybe I should have asked this earlier, but how would you give a, a definition of someone who is disabled? Yeah, there's, I guess, a couple different ways you could slice that. There's some very, like, medical definitions of, you know, it's a, a learning disability, vision disability, you know, hearing. But there's also, you know, other people that will temporarily experience disability. So, like, for example, I've dislocated my shoulder a number of times. So I've had periods of my life where I'm unable to use my right arm. I wouldn't consider myself a person with a disability, but I think a lot of people have that sort of disability experience uh, from incident or accident that is uh, temporary. So, you know, when I'm looking at sort of like what is accessibility and what is disability, it's, it's really what is about like what is adaptable and changeable to meet the various needs of different people. Uh, there's definitely, you know, standards in certain industries, right? You know, in travel, there may be accessibility standards, how well those are met sometimes an issue. Same thing, website development, right? The web content accessibility guidelines to make sure that um, users can use different assistive technology. So uh, at Neil Squire, we're, we're a cross-disability organization. My lab here in Burnaby, we have a, a hearing center where people can come in and have tests done for hearing aids. And if it's, they're using a workplace as government 
programming that can help subsidize those costs, for example. So I would say, well, Neil Squire's sort of superpower is really around physical disability and accommodation. You know, we've done training for people on how to use screen readers if you have low vision or uh, getting hearing aids if you're having a tough time hearing. So it, it, it's we try to be as holistic and inclusive as possible and really try to address the, the needs. We have a contract in Atlanta, Canada, for example, that's working with kids in the school system that have diagnosed learning disabilities and how there's, you know, different apps to help with memory and recall and pieces like that as well to help meet their needs. So we have a very sort of inclusive or not just like a disability organization focused on certain people with disability, but really trying to help technology serve a wide range of people, the variety of disabilities sort of close the gaps and achieve their goals. That's actually another good call out is temporary disability because I've done the same, dislocated my shoulder, broken my arm, all different kinds of things. And you need help during that moment uh, as you recover. I'm curious to know if there's any stigmas you need to overcome. If there's any times you you present, you know, what you do to, to an audience and they kind of shy away from it because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Or is there any kind of moments like, like those? Yeah, I think that that's a big part of uh, some of our work that we do. We have on our staff job developers that are trying to help people with disabilities that are ready, willing, and able to work, help them find employment. And there are still stigmas and assumptions sometimes. And those sometimes are from a lack of knowledge or a bit of fear. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, there's the sort of assumption that, well, you know, people with disabilities, you know, they're not going to be good employees. They're not going to be able to do the duties of the job. And uh, we actually helped work on a, a government panel that researched a number of us or employers that had programs with disabilities. And they found that people with disabilities are more likely to stay with their employer for a longer period of time. It may sound counterintuitive, but also found that people with disabilities take less sick days. They're more likely to show up for work. Um, another stigma is like, well, you know, how am I going to afford to accommodate someone with a disability? It's going to be extensive. Uh, you know, how am I going to afford this as a small business? And a lot of research shows that the average cost for accommodation is less than $500 and quite often um, has no cost. And if there is a physical cost to it, there's often government programs that help cover those costs. So just making people aware of the sort of the possibilities Here's a Canadian stat for you. Of people that with disabilities that are unemployed, over half of them have a university degree. So there's this fear of like, you know, there's this shrinking labor force and where are we going to find employees to sort of meet the demands that we have? There is an educated workforce that is looking for opportunities to fulfill those market gaps. So there's a, a skilled workforce there and they may have to have some different accommodations to be able to do the work. But I, I think we are also a little bit of a, interesting time right now where equity, diversity, and inclusion is really taking a front stage look at a number of these larger and small businesses. And that's where innovation, I think, really can come from. Yeah, it's the disability community. You have people that have been living in a world that has not been built for them. They've been able to overcome many challenges they face, solve complex problems to meet their needs for daily inclusion and participation. You have a trained problem-solving workforce, ready, willing to be sort of called into play. So th those are some of the pieces that we really try to help dispel is that there's um, the people with disabilities can really add value to organizations. It's not expensive. And what you're going to get is a, a someone that is a, a problem solver that is able to solve problems, able to contribute to the workplace, and is going to be a great employee. So uh, those are some of the barriers and stigmas we faced with, you know, people uh, and employers. Uh, another sort of common one is just a bit of misconception. You know, we've worked with people that have um, tough time speaking and there's sometimes that, well, you know, that assumption that someone that is, has difficult time, you know, verbalizing their thoughts 
has some cognitive de decline or isn't able. And I have uh, two computer programmers with me that have difficult time speaking. They are way better computer programs than I am. And I went to computer science, right? So <laughs> there's real opportunities. I think that, you know, people sometimes see some of the disability and think there's some cognitive issue or cognitive decline. That is not the case. It sounds like they're capable and motivated, which is, which is awesome. I'm curious to know how you work with partners. How, how do you spread your message aside from coming on podcasts? How do you, you know, share your message and, and try to get more uh, either designers or um, people to use your equipment? Yeah, we, I would say with Makers Making Change, there are three core audiences that are not people with disabilities. People with disabilities really need to be the core of it. They know what they need. But the other audience that, that we really try to focus on reaching out to to have sort of help further our mission and peace, uh, one is disability professionals. So, you know, think the occupational therapists, maybe uh, rehab assistants or speech language pathologists, people that really work with a wide range of people with disabilities. We work with them uh, to help both inform our designs, but also let them know that that assistive device that you are buying 50 of a year that costs 110 bucks each, we can fabricate that you for five bucks or 10 bucks. So really let them aware of how new technology can really change in making some of those devices or customizing devices and helping bring them in as sort of helping contribute in our designs and make sure they're meeting the needs. And then on the flip side, I've been doing a lot of work with sort of the maker community and in particular, education communities like for example you know in where we're at there's a lot of focus on you know stem education uh sort of uh, applied thinking and project-based learning and we think this is a fantastic opportunity to help address some disability barriers so you know if you're teaching 3d printing in your school great well let's not 3d print a yoda head or a phone case let's 3d print a cup holder for you know your grandma's wheelchair or a writing aid for a kid down the hall so he's better able to hold his pen or pencil crayons or um, some adaptive scissors, you know, really use these tools to sort of solve barriers that people are seeing in their community. So, you know, you're going to be learning soldering, you're going to be learning 3D printing, or you're going to be learning some design. Let's focus that energy to solve a real world problem and really bringing those communities together. So it's been, we've been trying to fish where people are at, really try to leverage the education system that has a sort of design thinking and, uh, you know, skill-based learning and STEM education sort of pieces and building this model on top of that. So they're having that sort of social impact along with their sort of educational outcomes. And then what can listeners listening to this podcast do to help? How can they contribute in some way if they're really motivated to? Yeah, I mean, if, if this is a scratching an itch for someone, the Makers Making Change website, makersmakingchange.com, has a whole library of assistive devices. And you can see on the website outstanding requests. So you can see if something's been requested in your area or if you have a 3D printer, you want to print it, that's great. And then for people that are a little bit more organized and want to make more systemic change, we do have a, a chapter sort of program where we provide, you know, leaders in the community with the resources they need to sort of help bring this model to their community. And that looks really different depending on the community. So sometimes that's a robotics club at school that want to volunteer and give back. And we're helping them, you know, here's some projects that we know will be of use. Let's introduce you a couple of organizations in your area and sort of fulfill that. And sometimes it's very flipped. It's a rehab hospital that knows I need 500 of these things a year and I don't want to pay 100 bucks for each of them. Can I work with someone to help me build these sort of pieces? So my ideal sort of chapter has both those sort of pieces in it. People with disabilities, disability professionals that know what is needed by the community and makers that can help fabricate these sort of pieces. And I'm, I've been very fortunate to have a few unicorns 
in there where they're occupational therapists that like playing with technology and they they've done really well in sort of building those other pieces on both you know telling their friends and their peers and their co-workers about it as well as you know participating in those maker fairs or those STEM education days and uh, bringing more people in to help fabricate pieces. So if people are interested, I encourage you to take a look at the Makers Making Change website. Maybe there's a project that you want to tackle, a design challenge, or, you know, build a small project that's from our library. But if you really want to lean into it a little further, um, happy to help support new chapters coming on board. And that's really how we've helped scale our impact in the last few years is empowering uh, passionate people that may be doing some of this work and giving them the resources they need to help scale and grow it. And if someone is motivated to help, but they don't have the hands-on time, let's say, is there a way to make a donation to your organization? Certainly, yeah. We're a Canadian registered charity. We're certainly very grateful for anyone that gives the, the gift of dollars to help sort of further the mission. And a lot of that money basically flows straight through to allow us to help close those gaps where maybe someone doesn't have the, the funding to afford the system technology they need so we can help provide that and give them the tools they need to move forward. Awesome. I'm curious to know what is then in the near term future for uh, Neil Square? Where would you like to see the organization in a few years from now? Yeah, we have uh, a couple big projects that we're working on. One in particular that is really exciting for me is around accessible video gaming. You know, we've done a lot of work in making sure people can access computers. I talked a bit about the lip sync, how, you know, smartphones change pieces. Video gaming is not a small part of our culture anymore. It's gross domestic product is bigger than uh, Hollywood. It's a huge industry, but again, most consoles or gaming systems, this is the controller you use. And one size does not fit all when it comes to disability. Microsoft put out an adaptive controller in 2017. Nintendo has an accessible controller now. And uh, Sony just announced one. Uh, thanks for joining the party, Sony, uh, here at uh, CES in Las Vegas just a couple of weeks ago. And it looks really promising. It's not commercially available yet, but... So helping people with disabilities have access to gaming is a real gap, at least right now in Canada. In the UK, there's a great organization, Special Effects, that does tremendous work in this area. In the States, Able Gamers really helps gamers that want to game figure out what accommodation you can use to do it. There's nothing like that in Canada right now. So we've been borrowing some of the Special Effects work and been in great talks with Able Gamers and really trying to help get in different communities across Canada, a spot where someone can come in and they can try different accommodations to figure out how they can game and participate too. And it's not just kids with disabilities that are missing out on these opportunities. You know, you think perhaps a, a dad has had an injury and he still wants to play games with his kid and an opportunity to communicate. And, you know, when you're in these virtual worlds, if you have the ability to sort of control your avatar or your character, you're just like everybody else, right? So I think there's real opportunities to try to help make people sure that they're able to game, have the opportunities to game, uh, so they can fully participate in this part of our world and culture like everyone else. So there's some good work to be done there, and we're making good progress in that area and releasing affordable designs that can be made for people so that your video game controller doesn't cost more than the console right now. It can be quite expensive. So trying to open source some of the designs and get them into centers so people can try things and have that opportunity to game. It's unfortunate that the game developers are a bit behind in helping disabled people I'm curious to know, have you seen anything in the VR world? Because that, if maybe they can take the leap and go straight to VR and help them there, would the controllers be any simpler or more complicated or more or less the same in terms of challenges as compared to, let's say, a PlayStation 5? 
Yeah, some of the challenges of VR can be more uh, profound in a couple different ways. I mean, there's the get the whole headset on piece, which may be a logistical piece. And then uh, a lot of the VR pieces I've used, you have a wand or a controller in two hands and depends on a wide range of movements and chain, turning your neck and control to sort of point where you're going and sort of click and access things. So VR is very, I would still say, sort of emerging and cutting edge. And I think there's real opportunities to think about that now um, as opposed to retrofitting something later, whether that allows, you know, different inputs or different controllers as opposed to like you have to have this one thing that fits in your hand just so, you know, can you, again, enable that sort of alternate input so someone maybe that's in a wheelchair and isn't going to be able to go skydiving or hang gliding to do that in VR and sort of control their experience through using, you know, the wheelchair control for example, as an input to this device or their head array or different switches as well. So um, I think there's some important work to be done there. And it looks like there's some real exciting things coming up in VR and moving forward. But having that sort of, again, ability to have other inputs to control that experience is going to be important to make sure that people with disabilities can make the most of those experiences and sometimes experience something through VR that they would not physically be able to do otherwise. Yeah, I love the idea of having that, you know, once you're in that world, once you're in that game, everybody's the same, right? The avatar is an avatar. Everybody is then equal. Chad, this has been really, really insightful. Thank you so much. Where can people find more about you online and maybe follow up with questions? Yeah, uh, neilsquire.ca is the charity that I've had the pleasure of working with for 20 years and started a number of projects with. Makersmakingchange.com is where I'm spending a bunch of my time. Uh, and, you know, we're on all your favorite social media. So you can find Neil Squire and Makers Making Change online or, you know, find me on LinkedIn, Chad Lehman. Uh, I have a Twitter account, all other fun stuff too. But yeah, plug in where it works best for you. But if you want to really get involved in this sort of like DIY assistive technology world, Makers Making Change is where it's at. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thanks, Alex. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, more than welcome. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.